Hello and welcome back to Cooking the Books, the podcast which looks at four food moments from the books of our favourite A-lister food writers. I'm Julie Smith and I'm linking the thinking about what we eat and who we are to create a deeper connection with food. This week, I'm with the eldest statesman of British French cuisine and sustainability, Raymond Blanc, OBE. But first, a word from one of my favourite podcasts and a former podcasting student of mine whose brilliant show, La Crème Anglaise, is one of the best ways to learn French. Here's Sarah Lesage on why we should listen and what she's listening to. La Crème Anglaise is a celebration of British cuisine for the French. After 25 years of living in France and having to defend our terrible reputation, which has been reduced to green jelly and boiled beef, I decided it was time to challenge the French on their guarded territory of their bonne cuisine. In each episode, I discuss with a British expat their favourite dish, their memories, the history and legends around it. It's quite tongue-in-cheek, particularly as I'm interviewing Brits in French. And though our fluency is far from perfect, the French love listening to it, just as they do, in fact, love our food. So, listeners to Cooking the Books, you who enjoy Call My Agent, Spiral and Lupin, this is a great way to learn French. And of course, all the French listeners like you, Monsieur Raymond Blanc, qui adore notre apple crumble, you will like it too. So, pinky up and bon appétit. And my favourite podcast, apart from Cooking the Books, obviously, is Gastropod, a well-researched, scientific and historical look at food around the globe with both English and American hosts. Now, it's been a big year for Raymond Blanc. His beloved mother, known affectionately as Maman Blanc, died while suffering from COVID. He survived a very serious dose of COVID himself and has learned, finally, to meditate. And he's released not one, but two books. The Lost Orchard, in which he lovingly reintroduces us to the apples and pears of our British heritage. And Simply Raymond, an homage to his mother and her simple but delicious rustic cooking. As I zoomed into Le Manoir, he was in reflective mood, celebrating the legacy of Maman and Papa Blanc, the role of Le Manoir in British culinary history, and planting trees with Prince Charles. I began by asking him what he wanted to achieve from these two quite different books. So when you write a book, you connect with your, your depths of your roots, of your tradition, of your culture. Okay, and you search deep, okay, into the soul, okay, and what represents uh, my food? And my food is is driven by sustainability, first, by that management of waste, management of energy, uh, you know, training young people to passing on your knowledge, your ideas, showing them that the table is a is a most magnificent medium to share food, okay, and to engage with people, share ideas, thoughts, you know, argue, laugh, okay. So these books are, are all about these values that were given actually only by my mum, okay, uh, a long, long time ago. It, it feels very circular, the, the, the books to me. You know, when we first connected way back maybe 30 years ago actually you know you were still you were doing very oat cuisine you know I went to Le Manoir it was terribly posh you know I was overwhelmed no, it's never I... been posh Le Manoir it's never been a French nose bag <laughs> it's a place actually I, I will tell you even that it's exactly what I didn't want to the first thing I, I did move was all the ancestors looking at you in a disappearing manner. I removed the heavy, thick carpet, the gold. It's a place which has always been, never been pushed. 
It's been always inclusive, not exclusive. I know, exclusive. but you know what I mean. You were known as somebody who trained amazing chefs. You trained Marco Pierre White, for example. You know, the, all the chefs coming out of your kitchen were going, they were creating what we learnt as British haute cuisine. It was a phenomenon way back when. You, you come from simple and humble origins, but what you were creating was really extraordinary British food. It looked beautiful. It looked like nothing we'd ever seen. And it came with this French tradition. But I created Brasserie Blanc, okay, which was the, the you know, I wanted to have, some, I wanted a French cancan of some sort, which was about Brasserie Blanc, with the same value about provenance, quality of the food, okay, and hospitality. And at, at a price that everyone can afford, and and, and the Manoir saison, and those are uh, share the same values. So I think I always that was in my that is in my DNA. So I've not mm-hmm. changed. But it is true, um, it is true to say as much as the food at Barcelona is simple and delicious, and and wholesome, the Manoir food is is about gastronomy. So there's there's subtleties, there's uh, there's different tastes and textures. It's a but never posh. Uh, that I will never. <laughs> I will have to take you on here. I, that's exactly what I didn't want to be, ever. Posh, Jimmy. I'm a French Republican, remember that, eh? So, yes, it was just a perception. And I think that we, as a country, have become much more comfortable with great food over the time that you've been cooking for us and training chefs so that we understand food more. True. I think that at the time I'm talking about, we were very uncomfortable with food. And uh, I think that the whole sustainability issue has made us really understand what connection with food is all about. From a very early age as a young boy, basically, uh, my parents being uh, working class uh, people, basically, uh, my papa built his own house with his own hands, I'm talking about, and a five-bedroom house because there was five children. So, and, And then we have a huge garden around, about half of the size of Le Manoir, Okay, so I know about hard work. I know what a garden means because from the age of five or six, I would help my papa remove the grass, remove the stone, which seems to grow out of this garden. I was given the understanding what this little seed, this gray little seed, can provide the life force of that seed, okay, which is not nice to look at. And suddenly, out of that seed, a little, a little seedling will come through and a beautiful vegetable, okay, will, 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 will feed a whole family. So I understand about the cycle, the seasonality. I learned at a very early stage that uh, seasons are everything for my mom. And she makes sense because if it's seasonal, it's close to home. So you have better taste, texture, flavor, colors, and nutrients. Yeah. Then, of course, you help your farmer to keep his farm. You help your 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 your, your village to keep uh, the post office uh, and the lo- local pubs. Then you don't import food from millions of miles away, so you don't create pollutions by growing these horrible vegetables and then import flying them across the world, creating pollution, which we then have to clean yeah. up. Okay, so it's a whole woman. And, and then, of course, the best part of our seasonality is that effectively it's cheap. Because there's a, when, there's, when the first uh, asparagus come in, they're expensive for the first week or 10 days. And then after, there's a glut of asparagus, a glut of strawberries, 
a lot of peas and then it's inexpensive and it's fresh. And you haven't just planted lots of trees in your orchard and your lost orchard you, and, and brought back apples and pears uh, from our own British heritage, but you have importantly really planted a very, very bee-friendly garden. You're, you're creating a bee village, aren't you? Yes, a bee village, yes. Uh, it's all part of the biodiversity you want to establish in your own garden. Uh, and the bee village will be about 12 meters wide. It will be like a bit like the planet of the little prince, you know, of our sphere. Okay, there will be a beautiful houses, all from British different regions. So all obviously created, painted, okay, with biodynamic painting, no chemicals whatsoever, wa- water. And that's going to be, every house will be different. Okay, and on the top, of the, of the, this beautiful half moon shape, which is a bee village. There will be, of course, a queen's castle, you know, with the dungeons and so on. And, <laughs> and she will be with a French flag on the top of it. <laughs> Just to tease, to tease my British friends. Okay. And the queen bee will be living here, assisted by all our workers and loved by all our workers. And there will be lots of grass, beautiful lavender and sage, you know, and rosemary and all these beautiful, you know, plants around and the rockery around that mound. So it's going to be very beautiful. And by it, you will have a degustation of different honeys. There will be also talk about uh, biodiversity, about all these things that we are so crucial to, to uh, sust- which sustains life. So this is all lives, including us. You have such fun with it, though. That's what's so inspiring about it. Let me just go back to the the original idea of the Simply Raymond book. It's an extraordinary book. You say that it's one of the most extraordinary cookbooks yeah. you've done in, in, in your time. It, it's huge. In many ways, you know, mm. your mother, who was your greatest in, inspiration and who underpinned everything that you do, she died. Mm. She was in hospital with a, with a, with a coronavirus, but she's... Uh, you you can you cannot see it, okay? But she had it, but she didn't die from it. Actually, she did die in a perfect way for Maman Blanc. In so much, she was in hospital. She didn't want to disturb the nurses at night, and then she decided to go down uh, to go bring down uh, uh, the barrier of her bed and and go to the loo by herself, so not to disturb the nurse. Unfortunately, she had forgotten that the hospital bed is twice as high as a bed she had at home, okay? And she crashed on the floor, and she erupted her stomach, and she had a... So she did die in helping people, basically, and that Aww. is typically her. She's a, she was an amazing woman with a heart so big, so big, huge empathy and a way to give love was actually food so so yeah and i and huge condolences to you i know how affected Mm -hmm. you were by her amazing generosity she was 97 when Mm. she died and you've built a statue of her in your beautiful gardens yeah yeah yeah. yes uh, leblanc very kindly asked him because a lot all the statues are commissioned they all tell a story, a real story. And Maman Blanc, of course, my mom uh, was really a great gardener, a farmer's daughter, and she didn't go to school. She had to work on the farm. So if you touch her hands, they're really so, they were so rough, so beautiful, but made of work. Okay, she had five children to look and raise, raise them. Okay, in a very difficult time. So basically, 
uh, all her life she has worked. My sons used to call Mother Teresa on speed, so imagine. <laughs> and she gave me this work ethic. She gave me the, those values of sustainability, of organic values, of purity, of authenticity, okay, all this value of seasonality. So I am rich with that. And all what I do is to pass it on to my young team. That's what I do. No more than that. A lot of the recipes in the book are inspired by her. And we'll go through yes. those in a, in a moment in your full food moments. But you also uh, suffered from COVID um, really badly. Tell us how that was for you. COVID was uh, almost half expected it because my immune system was very low. Uh, I'd worked flat out for for, so for that in that year. It was really a tough year, and I was exhausted. Okay, so and when I caught it, it was really. Uh, it was big because suddenly you've got 40, 41 degree of fever and you feel ice cold. And uh, it was really, uh, it was so immediate, so, 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 uh, I mean, it was, so then immediately, of course, I had a test and I was sent uh, ambulance to hospital. Thank God I went to Oxford, okay, which is uh, my hometown. Okay, so maybe it's funny to hear a Frenchman who claims Oxford to be his hometown, his heavy French accent. But that's what it is. I feel I belong here in many ways. Okay, my children have been risen here. My family, all my family is born here. So, so, and my teams um, basically are, are, are part of this local culture. So I was born, I was born at John Radcliffe in the high dependency unit and I was in a really seriously bad way. It was a severe COVID. Your lungs were about 70% infected. Okay, uh, by pneumonia, effectively, uh, and you could hardly breathe. So it, you're breathing from the top, and you feel really in a in a, in a really seriously bad way. Uh, and uh, I must say, the whole team of the NHS were qu- quite extraordinary. I live in the world of excellence, so I appreciate excellence, and the excellence they delivered on a minute-by-minute basis was amazing, that generosity, that kindness, that thoughtfulness, that team spirit which drives this this hospital, I benefited from it. And uh, and these people, I'm going to go organize actually a big party very soon for, for them, okay, because just to say thank you, because they really helped me to, to be, to be here today with you. Okay, it was, uh, you had no clue if what would happen. And actually what helped me with COVID was actually a very strange uh, thing happened. Uh, I was extremely ill and I had to, they wanted to put me into the, on the respirator in urgency. And I said, no, thank you very much, please. I want to hold my own destiny in my own hands. Okay, so I asked them to give me another four days. It had been already 17 days I'd been there and I, put the CPAP on my mouth, which is a, it seals your mouth and your nose. The flow of oxygen works against your breathing, and that's what makes your, your, your lungs work. So it's a very unpleasant way to, uh, to breathe because you are, the oxygen is flowing into your mouth, and at the same time you have got to breathe. And you have to breathe as deeply as you possibly can against that flow. And I managed to, during these four days where you don't sleep, of course, and you can hear all the patients screaming, you know, there's a lot of, uh, lots of suffering around you, and you really hear it, you don't sleep because you're full of, of, of medicine, you're full of steroids, you're full of, uh, 
and the nurse turn you around, puncture you here, puncture you there. I was, but after this, it's a way to live. It's a, you quickly become institutionalized in a way. To, to, you never, and, uh, but, and I learned here to meditate. Something I've tried for 40 years, and I failed miserably because I was thinking of courgettes, I would be thinking of my garden, or, or new bedrooms, or a new dish. Uh, or a new painting which could go there with that beam of light put in a certain <laughs> way. And I mean, I could never meditate. But here on his hospital bed, that's what really saved me. Okay, I managed to meditate, to concentrate solely on my breathing, breathing as deep as possible. And for four days, I didn't took the wow. CPAP mask Amazing. away. And I and and suddenly the, I always remember that moment because the consultant was in the morning. That's the one who wanted to put me in the in the respirator. And when the respirator, you're in con- you're unconscious, you know. And I wanted to be in charge of my destiny. And this lady saw my oxygen level, okay, going up, and she danced in oh. front of the bed, and she said, "Wow!" You know, she wrote it on the board. And that's the moment I will always remember. And that lady will be here. She's a consultant, and she will be there at Le Manoir when I welcome all these amazing people, really, who yeah. touch me enormously. Because I was a nurse myself for a year in the leukemia department in a Saint Anne hospital in Besançon, and I was saw about twelve young people dying. So I have a, a deep understanding of what they do and the generosity by which they give this total stranger so much love and so much professionalism. So I, w- I was lucky. So on that moment, I was, uh, obviously, there's a long process of uh, recovering afterward because you've got all the mental the, uh, effect of the COVID, okay? That means everything. That means anxiety, panic attack, you feel extremely vulnerable, and it takes some time. But now you can see I'm, uh, I'm getting there stronger and stronger yeah. every day. Did your gardens help you, Raymond? I mean, because you are famously, uh, the, I mean, Prince Charles level of far, uh, of gardening. You much have better. You're gardens. joking. <laughs> I mean, I invited actually once I gave <laughs> gave a speech to uh, at Highgrove. Uh, to very top world best gardeners. And I told, having seen the Prince Charles Garden, I told him, Sir, I'm sorry, your garden is very nice, but uh, you must go and see mine because you will see some extraordinary things there. <laughs> and he, and came, he did. Actually, of course, he, he was peeved a little bit, but as a good Englishman, you know, he was, <laughs> he was, he was uh, very sport about it. And he came here, and I remember for three hours, he loves garden. He's so, uh, he's a true uh, rooted person, okay, into the soul, understanding of biodiversity, you know, etc., etc. And he, he stayed three hours in my garden and under the beating rain, it was fantastic. And we planted a tree together in our two and a half thousand strong orchard. You have such fun, don't you? And you always have. I mean, your stories, and we'll start to go now through through your uh, full food moments, your Asiette de Crudite. Yeah. It, it comes from your relationship with the garden of your childhood. And this is where you started yeah. playing. Yeah. I, I love the idea that your dad drew you a map that you know where to get the best trout where to get the best carp. what fantastic inspiration well my, my dad was never a romantic but it's probably the, the most uh, uh, cherished present that he ever gave me imagine this this rough man 
uh, you know, who, who, who raised five children, you know, built his own house. He was a working class person. And he, and, and, and obviously, uh, there was never any messing around with him. I can tell you, you know exactly where you, you were. And when you were told to eat us, you ate us. Uh, and then he gave me on my birthday, and I was, I think I was about eight, and he gave me this beautiful drawn map where all the, all the type of varieties of mushrooms were growing, one to, and very special places. So you would get up at five o'clock in the morning. He made sure you were not followed and he would go deep in the woods, get his, his mushrooms. Some of them you have to get by the scent. Yeah. The yeah. petit gris is a mushroom who grew under the moss. So you couldn't see them, but their, their, their power is so strong. So imagine it's a bit like a, the primitive man who would be hunting with his smell to find where those mushrooms were. So you had to have, a, so I've, uh, I had a wonderful childhood because obviously I, I, I fetched wild, wild aspergers, berries, wild mushrooms, etc. So I was a rich man by the age of 10. Yeah. You, you worked in your father's garden from the beginning, didn't you? It was, it was oh, yes. a job of a child. You know, there was no nonsense about it. You had oh, to yes, help. Oh, yes, absolutely. And so your father actually taught you everything you need to know about a garden, but because you were bringing in the food to give to you Maman Blanc. Well, obviously a garden was feeding the whole family for the whole year in terms of vegetables. Uh, and it was a really serious cottage industry, okay? So effectively for about eight months of the year, I was in the garden. And the last three months, I was in the wood, cutting the wood to heat the house. And I'm talking about cutting the wood in the forest with that much of snow before the sap would grow, because I live in a very cold region. And my grandfather would, and my father would sow the big trees. And me, I would elagate, you know, the small branches. And we would have to carry these big logs, icy logs, okay, onto the carriage. So then chop them up. I mean, it was a serious, and then you have to leave them in the grenier. So I, I've known that. And the garden was exactly the same. I used to hate the garden to start with. Because, of course, as a kid, you want to play with your friends. You know, uh, you want to play football. And once my friends were playing football, I was doing the garden. Either removing the stone, removing the grass, hoeing between the rows. You know, or, and then when you saw it was all over, you had to harvest all the plants. You know, and then... After harvesting them, you had to top and tail the beans, pot the peas, tons of peas. And I mean, it never ended, okay? And my father would go everything in rotation. He was a great gardener. So my mom, okay, and both of them were extraordinary people. That's the value they gave me. So, so then after when it was all over, when you had potted your peas, my mom would, would then apply her own art, okay, of cooking, and she would put them into big pots and sterilize them. You know, and wrap them up in cloths and put them up in a huge container and boil them for about one hour or so to sterilize them. And then uh, my job was to put them on the shelves in yeah. the cellar downstairs. And the, the, she- the cellar was exactly the same footprint as the house. And there were thousands of, of pots, whether it is in vinegar, pickled, whether it was dried, whether it was poached and, and, and preserved. And I used to remember, I used to love the cellar. And I would sit on the top of the gardens, I would, and there would just see single dangling light, which would diffuse that little light, of course, to prevent the, the vegetables to germinate. Okay? 
And then we had that beaten earth and the smell of the potatoes, you know, the chicories, the endives, the beetroots, the, the pane, which is uh, what you call turnips. They would be all covered with a jute, a sack of jute, so they don't no light whatsoever. And the smell, and then you had a big barrel in the corner of this huge cellar, and which kept dripping. And the smell, and I used to sit on the top of my, my, my stairs and just watch when your eyes got used to the obscurity. You could see the outline of all the food, the different colors. And the smell was amazing. This earthy smell mixed with the dropping of the, of the barrel of the wine. It was unbelievable. So, and I should have known I would be a chef, but I didn't even, it took me, it took me another 10 years or so to learn that I would be a chef. <laughs> Incredible. But, but the reason I presume that you took, well, you tell me that why did you choose the Assiette de Crudité? Is it because of the flavor? First, Assiette de Crudité is a national French dish. Every Sunday, it is effectively what the roast beef is to England. Exactly, okay? If every Sunday, even now, you will have the French sitting down with a huge family around the table and they would eat assiette de crudité to start with, okay? And assiette de crudité, it is a garden. It's grated carrots, celeriac, you know, it is cucumber, it is tomatoes, it is whatever grows in the garden and you grate it and you chop it, a beautiful mustard French dressing, okay? So it can be as complicated as you want to or as simple as you want to. If you just want a simple carrot salad, which is beautiful with a lemon dressing, it's amazing. As a starter, it's appetizing, it's, uh, it's exciting, it's colorful, wonderful textures. So you can make it with six or seven vegetables grated and chopped, like tomatoes, cucumber and so on, and beetroots and so on. So imagine the colors, imagine the textures, imagine it was really, and a few hard-boiled eggs for protein on the top, so you have complete you know, dish of vegetables and protein, and, and it was beautiful and a lovely French dressing, and you were, so this dish is still loved by all French, and that's a dish which grace every Sunday's table, every Sunday's table, every Sunday, for 90% of Frenchmen. So for me, it's what we would have all the time. You know, uh, uh, and it was, that's for the first dish. Then after you had the rabbit. My mom used to, to raise rabbits. Okay, because it was cheap protein. It was not expensive. My job was to kill the rabbits and to feed them. And my mom talked to them. Okay, uh, and she loved the rabbits. And we French, okay, so there's two different, and that's why that we are going to, we're going to what a French paradox now. <laughs> and, uh, so effectively, she would feed them, talk to them, and so on. And me, I would have once a month kill a rabbit. And my mother would chop it up, cover it with salt, pepper, mustard, okay, a few herbs, roll it in a bit of flour, like, and, pon- and roast it in a beautiful tray with thyme, barely loads of garlic, deglaze a bit of white wine, water, because my mom always cooked with water. And this book is all about simplicity. It's about the roast stocks. You don't need sous vide machine. You don't need 20 chefs in the kitchen. It's very, it's a, sim, it's a book which distillate, you know, and um, simplicity, so to speak, as much as yeah. possible. All of these dishes have a storyline underneath. It was a, about childhood, it's about food. They do. The, in fact, the second food moment is the slow-roasted shoulder of lamb, which 
on one level is very much a British Sunday lunch, but it comes from... A story. It's a beautiful story. It was a beautiful summer day. with my, my, my friend René, and it was my best friend, my best friend. We were, we were born almost together, so close to the next house. And we were wondering, as kids do, you know, in the village, you know, uh, uh, there was two parts of the village. In the highest part, there was a long, long house made of wood, very quite cheap wood. And there, 200, about 200 Algerians were living there with three stoves in the middle of, of the... It's a story which is quite sad. It tells you why France has got the problem it has now. And my father told me, look, Raymond, what Luke France is doing to these people. It doesn't give them the right to education. So my father was a very well aware man. And suddenly we smelled something we never had smelled before. And we heard some songs and we heard some noise. So we went up towards the smell, of course, it's Frenchman, you know, and your gastric juices start to run around because the smell tasted, smelled very beautiful. So we came closer and closer and we saw something beautiful. First, the clothes were different from Western clothes, very colorful, scarves and so on. And just, and they were roasting a beautiful lamb. Okay, on a spit, but the lamb was red. So we were curious, you know, so as kids who came closer, they were all Algerians, okay, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and they were feasting, they were doing a feast. Everyone was happy, the families, the kids were running around, and there were these two little Frenchmen who were curious and were coming closer and closer to their feast. And they saw us, and they invited us to their feast. And they, they took the beautiful lamb from with their hands, Okay, onto a plate, okay, and with chickpeas and and the arisa, and because it was a, actually they were painting the lamb, okay, with this very beautiful North African uh, uh, condiment with the harissa, you know, and painting it. It was vermilion red. It was beautiful. And they gave me, they gave us in a bowl, okay, a piece of the lamb, okay, and some chickpeas and some vegetables. And I thought it was, um, and that's when I discovered Arisa. And of course, a bit too spicy for young, uh, young palates, but I loved it. And I love the lamb, that slow cooked lamb. Yeah. And it's the, again, it's the theatre. You keep talking about these very vivid memories. Yeah. And it reminds me of one of the stories where you actually decided to be a chef in the first place. Very you were late. walking past a Michelin starred restaurant in your own town and you looked through the window that's and it. you saw this theatre of food and you thought, that's what I want to do. Yes, but I was not. Be- I didn't become a chef straight away. I was nineteen. No. I became a cleaner, the, cleaner. <laughs> the best cleaner, then the best washer up, then the best glass washer up, then the best waiter, and then I came in the kitchen. I, 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 I entered the kitchen to- and I talked to the chef and to tell him that his sauces were too heavy, too thick. Okay, <laughs> and then I received a copper pan in my face, which broke my jaw, <laughs> broke my teeth. I was in hospital, and then I was exiled to England. <laughs> so when you, when you say exiled, I know that's why you came here, but yeah. but what, were you literally running away? No, no, from... no, no, no. The boss had decided that basically because uh, the chef, you know, when he came to see me at the hospital, when I had my wire in the in my jaw and so on, and the boss told me, uh, "You cannot talk to the chef like that. The chef is a creative power. He put a roof over my head. He pays the school fees for my sons and my daughters. He, 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 he keeps us alive. And you tell him he cannot cook. All what I wanted is to have a conversation with the chef, but to have a conversation with a monstrous giant." 
you know, we were so violent, and I saw him, you know, it was so violent, those kitchens were so violent, frightening. And, uh, and so, so the, the owner was so, came, went to see me at the hospital and telling me, you cannot do this. Of course, I could hardly respond to him, so it was a monologue, okay? And he said to me, but young man, I've seen you working, and I know you are going to succeed, but not in here. I will find you a place in England. And he found me a place in England, which was a rose revived, a beautiful little inn. And that's why my adventure, actually, my adventure started. And and from the moment I took that frying pan, that very frying pan, which broke my jaw, it also created my destiny in a way of creativity, about giving people joy, creating beautiful food, beautiful gardens. So you see, our, our life is, you know, there's always a good thing within the bad ones. There's very often a very good one. Absolutely. Uh, it leads us on to your third food moment, again, to a very British dish, <laughs> the apple blackberry crumble. <laughs> but, of course, this links the French <laughs> to the UK perfectly, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I'll tell you why. I was filming, I was filming uh, in uh, Lyon, and um, I was cooking for all the top chefs of Lyon. So there was Bocuse, there was Bozzi's, there was so many extraordinary top chefs, you know, really the, the world best chef. And I decided to, for dessert to give them two desserts, two, one very creative, uh, 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 two crumbles, one reverse crumble with chocolate, that means they put the crumble at the bottom of the chocolate, of the beautiful mousse of chocolate, and the other one was a crumble apple and blackberries, but not so traditional, because I noticed in eating many crumbles, because the desserts which are truly loved in England, that most of the crumbles, that's what the French call them, okay, they were soggy. They were costly at the top, but soggy at the bottom, which is understandable, because when you cook the apples, they steam up, and if you put two centimeters of raw crumble on the top, half of it will be cooked, and the rest will go on your tummy. You will fall off your chair, <laughs> because raw, raw flour is difficult to digest. Yeah. And I noticed that, so I decided to cook my crumble differently. Yeah and to cook the crumble separately. So I would do my, my crumble dough and crumble it over uh, the raw crumble over the tray and bake it, pre-bake it. So, and then I would cook my crumble, beautiful apples, and, and then put my crumble at the last moment onto the dish. And it was beautiful and light it is and genius. crunchy. We, we tried it at the weekend, and it, I, I will never cook crumble any different oh, way that's again. Lovely of you. Absolutely that is lovely genius. Of you. Thank you. What did the chefs of Lyon say? Yes, that's what... So effectively, they saw that thing, that English thing, crumble... <laughs> No, and they were all not very positive, you know. Certainly <laughs> <Exactly laughs> not in Lyon. It's, exactly. <laughs> it's the capital of, of gastronomy. You know, they were uh, crumble, crumble, what was that, you know. And, and I, but I had given them already four, four dishes before, so they were a little bit conditioned, okay. And when they saw the crumbling, they could smell you know, you know, I'd uh, uh, taken some beautiful, uh, you know, apples, you know, which are quite, quite beautiful. I couldn't use a Coxe orange pippin, which I regard the best apple, my favorite variety in English. Uh, and it's the most extraordinary uh, layering of perfume, of crunch, wonderful textures, beautiful balance of acidity and sweetness, floral flavor, you know, quite amazing. But because obviously we were in France, so I use a rennet. 
Okay, the Renette, my mom, my mom was very familiar with the Renette du Canada, which by the way doesn't come from Canada, but that's what, uh, that's what, we had one single tree, no, three trees at my home. Okay, we had a Morello cherry tree, uh, we had a Renette tree, and we had a Pear William tree. Okay, and, uh, <laughs> I always remember, it was about, I couldn't find my mom, you know, in the house, the big house, eh? And, uh, And I couldn't find her. So what? And then I went behind the house. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. And she was on a huge ladder. She was 95 at the time. <laughs> and she was on a huge ladder. She had put a huge ladder in the tree, which was covered with billions of beautiful vermilion red uh, cherries. You know? And she, was, she had hooked her basket you know, onto a big branch. And she was about five meters high. And I said... Maman, what are you doing? You know, what, the, what, what, do you, what do you have? I said, what's wrong, my son? Are you okay? <laughs> okay? Impossible, impossible little woman, I can tell you. Anyway, so, so, so to come back to my story, sorry, I always get lost on the way. To come back to my story, uh, uh, you know, this Frenchman, when they saw these two, one chocolate crumble, reverse crumble, I put the bottom, crumble at the bottom, and that's one of the traditional crumble, uh, apple, and blackberries. There was this silence. After you know, all the objections, the doubts, and then this Frenchman, you know, one, one of the top chefs rose up, said, Raymond, we couldn't believe it. It's an English dessert, and it is so exceptional for England. <laughs> you know, you know, this crumble is... <laughs> the best we've ever tasted as a, as a, as a dessert. Beautiful. And they, were, they all stood up and they sang La Marseillaise. <laughs> it was beautiful. Amazing. <laughs> It well was done. absolutely Fantastic. beautiful. So, so I was selling Great Britain to the Lyonnais. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful, wonderful. You love apples so much, Raymond. You have created yeah. not just an orchard, but you have reintroduced uh, Britain to their own apples through this book, mm -hmm. The Lost Orchard. I, I, worked, uh, I worked about seven years of research first uh, across Great Britain, and I worked as well with a wonderful man called William Sibley. Uh, it was really a huge uh, knowledge. He helps, he's still a consultant on our orchard. Uh, and, he, yes, he was, and he was a chairman of East Smalling. Okay, which is a huge center of science, crossbreeding program. And I remember once I was in a field of 6,000 strawberries. Imagine, the Beatles song, no? Strawberry, strawberry whatever field. it is, a beautiful song about strawberries field. And I was in the middle of this trial uh, that uh, East Morning was doing. It was not apple, but strawberries. And I was testing them, and you could see some of them pineapple, some of them were green, some of them yellow, some of them were purple, some of them was all about woodland, some of them were watery and boring, some of them smell of herbs, and they were looking for the best flavor, you know, mixing all these, choosing, it was amazing. So this morning is a little known center of, uh, of, of science in Gelbutten through crossbreeding program, and I wish, and they are responsible for most okay. of European foods mm -hmm. in, the, in Europe. So mm -hmm. you see, and it is just very close to us. So this man is also a master uh, uh, in apples, okay, apples and pears. And uh, so he helped me 
to, uh, to, to get all the right varieties. I went myself my way, uh, and I went to France, I remember, to go to, to find, there was a Monsieur Delbar. So we took a little plane of a friend, <laughs> a tiny little plane, and with Anne-Marie, the head gardener, we flew, and there was a storm, <laughs> it was very scary, and we managed to, to just to see an orchard, just to see an orchard, but not just any orchard. Monsieur Delbar was a master, you know, in creating the very best fruit, you know, part of the William Pears, the Red Burhardy, all. So, and we, and so we, we bought a few French trees, okay, but most of our trees are all about Great Britain, about what we have lost and what we could re- reinvent. Okay, so there were all rare varieties, some dating from 1600. So it is beautiful orchard. And I, and I love orchard. Of course, it's a huge undertaking, you know, and I'm not a, I'm not a, a, a gardener. I'm not a arbologist. I'm not a, an orchard person. So, so you have to surround yourself with the very best people, which we did. Let's finish with your last food moment. Your steak Maman Blanc. Yeah. With red wine, jus and sauté potatoes and bacon. Now, this is all about your mother's influence. And it's, for me, it's the wonderful sort of circular nature of your gastronomy and this rustic family food that, that really is the centre of your being. Completely. And my mum first always cooked with water. Uh, she never used stocks. And through water... She ex, she created this extraordinary osmosis of extracting the very best flavor, the very best from the meat, also from the veg, or from the fish she was cooking, just with water. And the steak is a perfect example to do actually a three-star Michelin jus with water. And all the ingredients you need, a steak, salt, pepper, 10 grams of butter, or five grams per, per portion, per, so it's hardly, there's no punishment, okay, and a steak, and some water, about one deciliter of water. And all what you do, you pan fry, you season the steak at the last moment, you don't want to cure your steak, it will harden it, and, 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 okay, so season it at the last moment with proper maldon salt and, uh, and, and a bit of pepper, b- b- quite a lot actually. Pan fried on one side, if when the butter is forming, when the butter f- is forming, it means it's at about 150 degrees and it's about to turn brown. So wait until it's, it's stopped forming and you know it's exactly the right moment when the co- butter becomes slightly blonde and you put your steak on one side. If you want it ray, two minutes on each side, medium ray, uh, two and a half minutes, medium, three minutes on each side. And you've got a beautiful color. And you can hear the sizzling. You don't want it too aggressive, so make sure it's medium heat. And you can hear the beautiful song of the sizzling, okay, of that steak. And the smell starts to fill up your whole house. It's amazing. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. So then do one side, then the other side. And then all what you do when you finish your two or three, two and a half minutes or three minutes according to which degree of cooking you want, you just add water. And the butter and the water sizzle. No, they create an emulsion. The butter is completely, uh, you know, mixing, emulsifying with the water. The water reduces down. And it picks up all the caramela juice at the bottom of the pan. And you have the most extraordinary jus you can have. You can do that with any fish any meat, 
and some vegetables, like fennel, like all the celeriac. I've got some beautiful recipes in the, in the book as well uh, with the celeriac, because celeriac has got a high sugar level, so it can brown very easily. So, so, so... It is simply Raymond. It is absolutely, I mean, it's the essence of what the book is about. I did the most amazing slow roast uh, pork belly Thank you. Uh, this weekend. Uh, just muscovado sugar, uh, ginger and garlic. Rub it on the, on the skin and put it in the oven for two and a half hours. Oh, my goodness. And deglaze with water. Don't forget. Yes, absolutely beautiful. Um, Raymond, it's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much. It's a really excellent, simple book that is absolutely full of your values. I think that your Maman Blanc would be very proud indeed. Merci. Thank you very much. Au revoir. Thanks for listening. You can buy all the books featured on Cooking the Books by clicking on the bookshop tab at jillysmith.com. And while you're there, do sign up for the newsletter to keep up with all my news. Don't forget to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And I'll see you next week when I'm talking to writer and former fiction editor of The New Yorker, Bill Buford, about his adventures in French cooking. Mm-hmm.